0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. All right, so good to be with you all. Thanks for coming. Glad you are here, each one of you. We are continuing our study through the book of Revelation. So uh, if you're new to the Bible, go to the very end and then turn left, just a couple pages. Um, We are going to be in Revelation chapter 21, the moment we've all been waiting for, the moment we're still all waiting for. Revelation 21. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. If you don't have a Bible that uh, you understand very well or you'd like a Bible, we would love to give you one of these. So if you need a Bible... Just take it home. We'd be glad for you to have it. Uh, All we ask is that you would read it, and we'll be happy. So that's our gift to you. But again, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. Let's hear the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down... Will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are here because we believe that you are honored as we sit before your word and because we know that this is how you pursue us. This is how you build us up. This is how you draw us to yourself. This is how you warn us and discipline us and also comfort us and encourage us. This is how you let us know who you are and what you've done so that we can belong to you. And so we pray, Lord, as we look at this amazing passage, which is just too beautiful for me, um, too sober to fully express. Lord, we pray that you would do your work, the work you intend to do with your word, as we sit before it together. So help me teach this faithfully, and Lord, speak to each one of us exactly what we need to hear, and let us know it's from you and respond accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Can you remember a moment when you got really thirsty? Can you remember a moment like that? Uh, For me, if you ask me that question, the story I remember is when my wife, Marcia and I went hiking in Yosemite and we got to do Half Dome. If you've seen Half Dome, it's, it's all inspiring, right? You do this hike to get up there, and then it's, you're like, is this legal, really? It's so steep, and it's got this kind of ladder set up with the wires, and you, you're like perpendicular, way up high. You climb up there. You get to the top. You're 4,800 feet, I think, above the valley floor, so you, you get on your belly, and you're looking over the edge. Whoa! You're, it's a blast, right? And so we're up there, and we're taking our pictures, and fooling about, and it's hot and dry, and before long, you realize, we don't have very much water, you don't want to carry a bunch of pounds up that thing, and you, we don't have enough water, we, we should probably, I think, as I remember, that's why we started back, is like, water. We started climbing down, and that takes a while, and then you're hiking, and that takes a while, and by the time I was on that hike, to get back to that river, that river full of, and it is, right, clear, cold water you're getting back to that river, you're going to get some of that, you filter that water and drink it, but you're starting to feel it, right? You're a little, you're not feeling so well, and, and you're, what are you longing for amazingly and intensely? Like I'm just like fantasizing about this water, cold, clear water, and I don't just want to drink it, I want to become like, I want to become one with it, because I am so Thirsty. And then you get there and you get in it and you, ah, oh, it's, it's sweet. It tastes like honey. Um, literally, it gave me life. Right? We need to drink to live. Well, I ask you that question. And I tell you that story because throughout the Bible, this. Very common, relatable idea of thirst, right? We all understand this experience. This common idea of thirst throughout the Bible is used as an important illustration. When the Bible talks about your thirst, it's getting at your deepest, most desperate desires. It's getting at the idea of what you think you need to have life. To really live. And of course it's going way beyond food and water. What do you need for that sense of self? What do you think you need? What do you need for that sense of satisfaction? For that sense of security? Of belonging? For meaning? What do you thirst for? You remember Sprite had those commercials? Anybody know what they were? Obey your... Obey your thirst. They don't have to tell you to do that. They don't have to. Because guess what you're doing? All the time, every day. Guess what you're doing? You are obeying your thirst. And so the question from this text that comes at us is it's it's not if you're obeying your thirst, it's what are you most thirsty for? What do you want most? What do you say at like a core level? I need this. To give me life. Well, I hope you can answer that for yourself a little bit. You know, thinking about thirst, it's amazing to see what God Himself offers us. Isaiah 55 1, just an amazing invitation. Come, the Lord God says. Everyone who thirsts, and then what does He call Himself? Come to the waters. You think you're thirsty? I've got everything you need and far more. Come to me. If you'll learn to thirst for me, God says, I'll satisfy you. So we're nearly at the finish line of our study through Revelation. And from the perspective of this book, two out of three of the greatest events of the future have already occurred. Great event number one, Jesus Christ has literally physically returned from from the perspective of the book. We're waiting for that, right? That future event. Jesus will literally physically return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Second, the second major thing that's going to happen in the future, final judgment has taken place from the perspective of the book. We looked at that last week where every one of us will stand before the white throne of God and answer for how we've lived. If you want to know more about that, that message is on our website. But from the perspective of the book, that's happened. And so now we get to this third major event that will happen in the future, and it's this vision of heaven. And the vision is delicious, and it's meant to whet your thirst. It's meant to make you go, oh, I want that. Oh, I want to be there for that. Proverbs 25, 25 says, like a cold water, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. And I think this text is kind of like, uh, like cold water to a thirsty soul. This passage is good news of a far country that will certainly come. And so it's meant to wet your thirst. Uh, But there's more. This this is how we're going to walk through this today. There's three major ideas I want to consider with you. I want you to ponder. Number one, we're going to see the beauty of the new. New, 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 new. That was all over this passage. We're going to see the beauty of the new. That's, that's supposed to wet your thirst. You're supposed to be like, oh, I want, to, I want that. Then number two, we're going to hear the promise of the new. There's just this fundamental promise right here in this text. And then third, we're challenged to check our thirsts. We're challenged to check our thirst. We're we're challenged to ask ourselves, what am I most thirsty for for life? Is it what it should be? Because if, if this text is true, and it is, and if I'm honest, I'm trying to be, what you fundamentally thirst for is so important. It's the difference between enjoying The new heavens and earth forever or eternal condemnation. The stakes cannot be higher than this text describes them. So we want to see the beauty of the new, thirst for it. We want to hear the promise of the new, believe it. We want to check our thirst, all right? Here we go. Number one, see the beauty of the new. What did Jesus say in verse five? He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things. And what's that last word? New. All things new. Four times in this passage, the word new is used. New, 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 new. And then a fifth time, there's the old has passed away. So it's kind of like five times. And are you, are, I guess there's a theme we're supposed to catch on to. What's going to come? The new. And what's going to be made new everything. What does this mean? You know, there's something about this life. Can, can you feel it? Uh, isn't there something in you, at least in some categories of your life, you always want the new, that you need something new right now? What are you hoping for? A new? Uh, you need something new, and the reason you need something new is because what, what happens with last year's new? It gets old, Okay. Every Saturday morning, some people are out there and they're passionate and they're walking around following the cardboard signs. And what are they looking for? Garage sales. Because somebody's new became old. You want it for 25 cents? But it's new to somebody else. But guess what will happen? It will become old. It's true with our possessions. Everything in this life, even as new and wonderful as it was, it gets old, it turns to trash. It's true with our bodies. Oh, isn't this true with our bodies? When we're really young, we're, we're excited to get older because we'll be able to do new things. And then, oh, it's so fast. Very soon we're older and we're like, I wish I could stay young. And then we have this weird thing. If you're a parent, you like want your kid to do well getting older, but you kind of wish they could stay young too. Any, anyone? Anyone? And it's just like, it's passing through our fingers. And, and, and then we're getting older and we're like, we look in the mirror and we melt, we sag. We don't, we, don't, we don't work like we used to. This is God's word, right? From sin, from dust you are to dust, you will return. It might take... Hopefully, it'll take a long time. Hopefully, you got 80 good years. Maybe you'll get a ton of years. Maybe you'll get less years. But you have an expiration date, and a lot of us can feel that. And so then there's also this, there's something about this life, the new gets old. It's not just true with our possessions, our bodies. It's true with our hearts. Are you a lost soul looking for satisfaction if you look deep within? And have you tried a bunch of flavors try to make life meaningful and worth living, to try to be you, try to be someone, to to try to feel good enough. Think of the things human beings, the things we have reached for and longed for to finally be enough and have enough and know we're okay. It's everything under the sun and it never works. C.S. Lewis says this, C.S. Lewis says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. And then later in this passage, Lewis says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, Lewis says, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's interesting. I mean, you're thirsty, right? You need to drink water. What's the world have in it? Water. You're hungry. You need to eat. What grows on trees? Food. This world can never satisfy you. What do you need? Another world. Jesus says, I'm making all things new. Uh, Smarter people than me tell me there are two Greek words for new. One is an idea of like chronology. Like it just appeared on the scene. It's brand new. It's like a time idea of new. But there's another word, and it's a word used in this passage, which is the idea of quality. It's it's unprecedented. It's fresh. It's unworn. And the idea is that it's always enduringly new, kind of like God himself. Do you know he's old, but he's always new? Because he's eternal. He's self-sufficient. He has no needs. Always ultimate excellence. So it's hard to describe, but I just want to invite you to imagine this with me. Three things that will be in quality new. Number one, a new earth. Twenty one twenty one. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So, so what do you think of when you think of heaven? That, that can be a confusing word in part because we use it to mean different things. So if you, if, you, if you talk about heaven, right? Well, you could say the heavens, you could, I guess, mean the atmosphere, the sky. You could say heaven. You could think of the expression of God's presence. Like we've seen visions of heaven, kind of where God is manifested and his creatures are with him. But then that we, we also use the word heaven like this. Are you going to go to heaven? It's a good question. What do you think of when I use the word in that way? Are you going to go to heaven? I remember struggling with this a lot as a kid. And, and my struggles were summed up once in a Gary Larson Farside comic. Did you guys ever read Farside? Man, that guy was dark in the mind, and man, he was funny, right? Um, and so he's got this picture of this kind of... Grumpy middle-aged guy in a bathrobe, sitting on a cloud, holding a harp, and he's just kind of deadpan, and the quip underneath is, guess I should have brought a magazine. And, And so you take these illustrations from Revelation, and you make them way too literal, and you don't unpack them, and you get this idea of like, well, I'll be floating, I guess, and playing a harp. I don't know how to do that, and singing. I'm not a great singer, and I especially don't think the people around me are great singers, and like, I guess it's better than hell. Um, And if that's your view of heaven, I just want to let you know in all love, you could not be more wrong. You you could not be more wrong. That's, That's not what it is. In fact, when we speak of are you going to heaven, like as a Christian, are you going to heaven, what we mean or what we should mean is, will you be on the new earth? It's an earth. And one thing about the idea of an earth is, you know what an earth is like. You're, you live on one. You know what it's like. And God's promise is, this earth will be undone in some way. Undone, radically undone, and somehow fundamentally remade. Remade. It'll be all the All the goodness that this one pointed you to. I mean, this world has some good things in it, doesn't it? The Bible says so. Good, 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 wonderful things. And yet they're all just, this text says, a shadow of the new earth. It's a shadow. I heard, I heard one pastor use the idea uh, like this. Have you, ever, have you ever been to a place and it was so beautiful and so amazing and you were there and you felt it, you tasted it, you worked to get there, you experienced this place and you were like, I'm going to take a picture and you got out your camera and you, you did your best and some of you are wonderful photographers. You did your best and you took that picture and then later you, you went home and you're, you're going to show your friend and you, and you open the picture and you're like, ah, you know, see, and they're like, oh, it's pretty. And, and you're thinking, that, that's not what it was. Uh, I mean, yeah, but it's not what it was. That's the way this earth will look compared to the other one. This one's, this one's just a one-dimensional picture. The other one is the real one. This one has a limited shelf life. Moreover, biblically, this one is cursed. It's futile. Read Romans 8. It's fallen into futility, which means it can't reach the goodness it's meant to reach. And even as good as it, as it is, the goodness is limited. Moreover, there's all, the, there's all the chaos and the brokenness and the tragedy that occurs on this earth. There's the famine, the lack of rain, tsunamis, earthquakes, all the rest. This one's broken, But the same God who made this amazing world out of nothing will renew this world. That's what he promises. You think he's up to it? I I think most people believe there's a God who created the world. And I just want to, do you realize what you're believing there? How powerful and how wise and how good is that God that could make this and the cosmos and the universe out of nothing? You'll never have your mind blown like when you, when you ponder that, and you start reading scientific books about fine-tuning and gravity and stars, and ah, mind-blown. How strong and wise and good is God? If this is the earth he makes for rebels and enemies to live on, what will he make when he wants to thrill his people? You just, we can't get it, can we? But our hearts are like, oh. And the story, there's a the story of this Earth: creation follows God, peop- God's people. God made the first one good, right He made Adam and Eve to represent him and be stewards of it. They rebelled. They, fo- they followed Satan's lie. God's not good, His words are not true. Let's replace him. They rebelled, and when they fell, creation fell with them, subject to fertility, fundamentally broken, sickness, fragility, etc.. the unattainable satisfaction, unattainable. But when God remakes his people, the world will follow. It'll be new. Did you see that line, the sea was no more? How do you feel about that? The sea was no more. Some of you are like, that's fine. I hate sand, waves, salt water, don't need it. <laughs> Others you are like, oh, you know, and for me, that's when I was going to finally be a good surfer. <laughs> it was on the new earth. Finally, I could hang out. I could, I could like catch up with Chris Gearhart, you know, and, uh, and I can actually surf. But listen, one thing I do know, no one on the new earth will be disappointed. Amen? Do, do you think it's conceivable that God could try to thrill you and you go, eh. <laughs> No way. No one on the new earth will be disappointed. So I'll submit, whatever you want, Lord. But a second thing I'm pretty sure of, this is symbolic. Most of Revelation has been symbolic. And in the ancient world and in Revelation itself, the sea symbolizes evil and Chaos. Remember with me Revelation 13.1. Revelation 13.1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Well, that's interesting. It, is this Godzilla? Uh, should we take this literally? Of course not. We know from the context the beast represents human government gone bad. It represents tyranny, and human governments can be so evil sometimes, they're like beasts. We got that idea from the prophet Daniel. So what does it mean, then, that horrible systems of evil come out of the sea? Well, it's not like you were at the beach and out came the system of evil. You know, from That's ridiculous. The sea was seen as this uncontrollable place of chaos and evil. It's that there's danger always lurking around the corner. That that nothing can be trusted. That that this is a scary, terrifying place. That It's out of control. Doesn't life feel like that sometimes? Evil winds, it's out of control. There's nothing we can do. And if that's what it means, think about this new earth. There's no more sea. There's no more danger. There's no more uncontrollable evil and chaos. There's no more enemy around the corner. There's, There's no more abuse, victimization. There's no more wreckage on one another's lives. That's what it means. Don't you want to go there? Do you want to go there? No more sea. It's hard to imagine. This is God's promise for his people. This was, it was always meant to be this way. What, what does God make for his people? He makes a garden. What happens? We sin, we lose it. What does God give to Israel? A promised land. What happens? They rebel, they lose it. Who are we now in Christ? According to First Peter, according to Hebrews, we're exiles. That means this world is what? It's not our home. But what does God always have in mind to give to his people? He gives his people a place. A place he's made us to need this, to want this. He promised it to us. Look at Romans 4:13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be, and here's a phrase I want you to see, that he would be what? Heir of the world. If you read the Old Testament, where does God promise to give Abraham a world? I don't think you'll see it. He promises to give him a land. But in the New Testament, in Christ, that promise is expanded. And now Abraham and those like him, they're gonna be heirs. And what does it mean to be an heir? You inherit. And what are you gonna inherit? The world. What world? The new world. It's gonna be ours. How do you get it? Not through the law. In other words, don't try to be good enough by your own deeds to be right with God. No, but through the righteousness of what? If you repent of your sin and you trust Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection to make you right with God, guess what your inheritance is? The new world. What did Jesus say? John 14, two. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If we're not so, would I, would I have told you that I go? What's Jesus doing to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That is pure sweetness. It's pure sweetness. You ever see that silly show? You know, they remake the home and they're like, move the bus, move the bus. Anybody see that show? And so this home was wreckage before and then all these specialty people come in and it's, now it's awesome and they got the bus in front of it and the people are waiting in front of the house to see their new house. Move the bus, move the bus. And they move the bus and then what does everybody do? You know, you know they just, They're losing it because their house is so great. You ever watch that show and go, oh, I wish I could have a, a house like that. This exceeds that in every way imaginable when we see the new earth We see it's ours, and we get to be there together with Jesus. No more sea. You'll explode for joy. This is God's promise to you. You're supposed to think on this regularly. You're supposed to have this in your pocket. It's supposed to help you emotionally. It's supposed to help you endure through hard times. It's supposed to give you hope when this world seems terrible. You're supposed to know you are inheriting the new earth. It's not a secondary thing, is it? Look, there will be a new people as well. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down from heaven out of God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, good old John in Revelation, right? Let's take a bunch of illustrations and pop them together. So first of all, we have a city, and I guess I'm imagining buildings uh, and people. And then the city is dressed as a bride, and that's, you know, is it they have a large white hangings? On the buildings. And of course, when you read Revelation, literalistically, you will get in trouble. But we've learned, haven't we? How do you read Revelation? Biblically and symbolically. Biblically and symbolically. This city is the city of Zion, mentioned several times in the book. And you could read the story of Zion throughout the whole Bible. King David, the king after God's own heart, took Jerusalem uh, as the city of the king, Solomon built the temple there. So now this is where the people of God congregate with God, through his king, through the priests, through the sacrifices. And so over time, throughout the prophets, Zion begins to represent the people of God. We're the city of God, his people. Here's an example, Psalm 125, 1-2. to Those who trust in the Lord are like, what are we like? Mount Zion, you see the, you see the illustration. Mount Zion—that's where the temple is, literally. But the people of the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Ultimately, it's it's God's people that cannot be moved, that abide forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. So, when you're seeing the new people, you're seeing what God will do with the church. I just want you to note the importance of the church. We just heard about the end of the world and the coming of the new world and second on the scene with the coming of the new world is what's spotlighted the church. Friends, how important is the church and the local church as an expression of the church? You know, we realize, right, it's part of our lives here in this world. The church can be so ugly and disappointing sometimes. It can. We can be so hypocritical, divisive, immature, easily tossed by the waves of new philosophies, offended, unforgiving, unwelcoming, every problem known to man, we have it. Ugly sometimes. And we're looking for that one church that would be holy, kind, radical, bold, winsome, artistic, and welcoming enough and it's hard to find. And you know what the problem is? If I ever did find the perfect church, they wouldn't let me join it. Because <laughs> I would ruin it. So we know we have an already not yet experience here, right? That's one way you have to read the New Testament. The things God promises in the end, we don't have them in fullness, but we, but we have them. But we don't have them in fullness, but, but we have them. And we see here God's goal for the church is that his people will fundamentally be, from top to bottom, absolutely gorgeous and radiant. And this is not a wishful thinking kind of hope. This is a certainty. This is who we will be. And did you notice that despite all our flaws, Jesus wants to marry us? He wants to marry us. He's, he's not just dating, you know, to play around until we mess up. And he's like, I'm dumping you. He, he, he's getting us ready for the wedding. And it lasts forever. He's a faithful and true husband. And so you see some of what this illustration is supposed to do, right? Uh, we've all been hurt in ideas of romance. For some of us, marriages have been more painful than pleasurable, uh, in our society we even you know people even wonder if this is even worth keeping around anymore but hold fast to what you know should be in your heart of hearts and see the picture of Christ's heart for his people it's a picture of love faithfulness provision protection cultivation care intimacy and pleasure That's Jesus' intention for us. That's his goal for us. And you know, back to that verse five where it says, behold, I'm making all things new. That verse, making all things new, the, the, the Greek in there is present active. So he's not saying, I'm, I'm just gonna do it one day. Obviously, there's an aspect to that where it finishes in culmination. But what he's saying is, I'm in the process of doing it now. Now. And you know where the locus of that is? Where is Jesus making things new now? It's in you. This is where it starts. It's in me. Let me share a couple verses with you. Look at 2 Corinthians 5:17. What happens to someone when they trust Christ? 2 Corinthians 5:17. 5, 5, Therefore, if any was is is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's the same language as in Revelation, and it's talking about you as you convert and turn from your sin and trust to Christ. And so in one way, we need to ask a confronting question. Uh, Do I really trust Christ? Is there any evidence in me that I'm new? If no one can see anything about you being new, reset. But be encouraged, because it's not talking about you trust Christ and now you're perfect. No, 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 no. But God has started something new, fundamentally new in you, and it will grow until that day where we are the city dressed like a bride. The new has begun. We're new creatures. What does it look like? Look at Second Corinthians eleven two. Paul's talking to the church. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You see the illustration? As an apostle planning this church, he was like a matchmaker, sort of, right? That's the illustration. And so now the church, this local church, and man, they had problems, right? The Corinthian church, this local church, they're betrothed to Jesus. And so Paul's desire is, what does he want for their heart? Just a loyal, devoted love for Jesus. That's what it looks like to be new, right? Because on the new earth, what do we look like? A bride. A bride that loves her husband. Newness is this loyal devotion, joy in Jesus. One more picture. Look at Ephesians 5. What is Jesus doing in us? Now, now, Paul's starting talking about marriage, counsel for marriage, but really his main point is Christ and what Christ is doing. Look at Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might, look what he's doing, sanctify her. What's Jesus wanna do in your life? Sanctify you, make, me, make you holy. He's cle- having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. He cleansed you through the cross and the word of the gospel. And that the power of the scriptures, and his, here's his goal, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is making you new as he is drawing you to loyalty and love to himself. And one day the work will be finished and we together will be a new people the city dressed like a bride and i want you to imagine this with me that on that day when it comes true can you imagine an existence with no more sin Have you ever pondered how much sin just impacts even the the internal meditations of your heart i've been a pastor a long time i think i love jesus my heart is a dumpster fire sometimes My mind is wreckage sometimes. And even the work of praying, of confessing, of fighting. Like, how much does sin just in here? I don't even think, we don't even see the deep layers. What about in our our interactions with one another? Why is it so easy to offend and be offended all the time? Why are we so insecure with a distance towards one another? A distance towards God, there's this, Yeah, we're new, it's begun, we're his people, but sin is just the flesh, it's in there. And can you imagine an existence when all of that is gone? Ugh. You know, part of our problem with satisfaction is our capacity for satisfaction is so limited due to the impurity of sin. And when that's removed, the joy and God and his works and one another will just explode. There will be a new people. We'll inherit a new earth, we'll be fit for it, we'll be a new people. There'll be a new experience with God. We'll see this in verse three. And I heard a loud voice from his throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they'll be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Again, this has been God's promise from the beginning. It's in Genesis. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And we're getting there. We're getting there. There's downs. There's ups. Finally, Christ comes and and fulfills it. And then finally, we see the goal. What's the goal? What's what's the point of Christianity? Sometimes we say forgiveness. Listen, I love forgiveness. Do you like being forgiven? That's awesome. But is forgiveness the goal? Or is forgiveness a doorway you can go through so that you can get to the goal? What about righteousness in Christ? What about faithful living, sanctification, obedience? All these things, they're so important, but they bring glory to God. We want to pursue them now, but they're all just getting you to the goal. You know what the goal is? For us to be with God, and he will be us, with us as our God and we his people. The goal is fellowship with God is to be right there with him, enjoying him, enveloped by his presence, by his goodness. There's a pastor, John Piper, who has said, God is the gospel. And you see his point. The best part of trusting in Jesus Christ is not forgiveness. It's that you get God. And this is the heaven of heaven. This is the best part when you are with him, intimately, face to face, brought near. This is our hope. Friends, draw near to God. Draw near to God. When we are in heaven, it won't be like tests about theology. I love theology, it's essential. Heaven will not be tests about theology. It won't be a list of facts. It will be him. Do you know him? Do you fellowship with him? Because that's where we're going. Him. Psalm 1611. You have made known to me the path of life. And here it is. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Nobody wants you to be happy if you're a Christian. More than God. The difficulty you have with him sometimes is he and you have different definitions of what will, in the end, satisfy you. And he's telling you, it's me. Because we have this new experience with God, and we're with God in this way, look at verse 4. Look how this new experience flows out. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You guys have tears? Tears that have actually fallen on the outside, tears that fall on the inside. Oh, do we have tears. We've felt pain. Oh, the sadness, discouragements, failures, evils we've endured, regrets, anxiety, scars of the past, mental, emotional difficulties. The sense of always being the outsider, unwelcome, not enough. So much pain, I can't even scratch the surface. And look at this promise. You know, it doesn't even say the angel will come and wipe away the tear. I guess that would be amazing. Who is going to wipe away every tear? Tear. God will wipe away every tear, which means every hurt he will personally heal. I heard heard one pastor say, could it be that the joy of God wiping away your tears is infinitely greater than the sorrow you ever had in sharing them? or shedding them. That, that almost him wiping it away would have made it worth it. That almost everything sad will come untrue. Did, did you see what happens to mourning, pain, and death? The former things have passed away. That's the old world. We're done with that. That's old, that's old news. Mourning, pain, that's old news. And in fact, whatever sadness or evil is even remembered will only serve to increase our joy in Jesus and what he's done for us. Do you believe this? It's hard to imagine. Now let's see the promise. Because there's a new earth, a new people, a new experience of God. Now you're going to see the promise. Look at verse 5 to 6. And he, and he was sitting on the throne and said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And I think he knows that when we hear that, we go, That's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. And then he says, also write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. What did he say to you about his own promise? I mean, he doesn't have to do this, but what does he say about his own promise? I promise. He just promised, I promise I'll keep my promise. And then look what he says about himself. And he said to me, first three words, it is done. And we're sitting here reading this going, no, it's not. What does he mean by speaking in the past tense? We talk like this today, don't we? Hey, uh, can you help me set up Sunday morning? Done. What's it mean? I'm so faithful, you can count on me. It's as if it's good as done. That's what God is saying. The new earth, the new people, the new experience with him are as good as done. He will do it, and he stakes his name upon it. He says, if I don't do this, I'm not God. Look, he said to me, I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end. I can make everything new because I'm the start and I'm the finish. I'm the uncaused one. I'm all sufficient. I'm eternal. I'm faithful and true. The only thing I can't do is lie. I tell the truth. I stake my godness on it. It's going to be new. Why does he talk like this to you? I know why. I think I know why. Because I, I don't believe it the first time. <laughs> it's hard to believe. And God is kind and he comforts us. And says, Let me promise you again. Let me just emphasize it again. I'm staking my whole self on this. This is what I will do. Are you thirsty for this? You want to go? You want to be there? You want to be there on the new earth as the new people with a new experience of God? Every Christian wants this. And if you have no desire for this at all, you're invited to check your thirst. Really, we're all invited to check our thirst. Because, you know, God isn't the only one offering to satisfy your thirst, is he? Do you remember what was said about Babylon? Remember, she's symbolic too, okay? It was uh, economic... Cultural systems that just try to get you to love something other than Jesus and follow it. So look at Revelation seventeen four. What's this lady holding? The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. What do you do with things in a cup? You drink it and it's golden. So how does that look? Mm. If you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, right? It's like a white witch with her potion. Here, drink this. And it tastes good at first, but what is it? It's a cup of what? Abominations, evil, wickedness, sludge, brokenness, lostness. But do you see? She's offering you a drink because you're thirsty. I want to be happy, your heart says. And if I just had, ah, and I'll sell myself out for it. So, we got to have another boyfriend or another girlfriend and, and do it in a way that doesn't honor God or his design because I'm longing for my, to be someone. I've got to be better than someone else and I've got to show them because I've got people need to see who I. Do you see what we do? This thirst is misdirected. So, we drink from the wrong cup. And then look at verse 8 it's, it's scary. You get this long list, right? Cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Eight descriptors, and where do all, all the people who practice these things, who pursue these things, where do they go according to the text? They go to hell. So I want you to think of what they're thirsty for. What's a cowardly person thirsty for? comfort and no controversy. And so remember for John's story, right? He's in exile on the Isle of Patmos because he wouldn't worship the emperor. And he was courageous about saying, no, I'm going to worship Jesus alone. And they put him in exile. But you know what some people did? I'm sure we could feel the pressure. We'll exile you and take you away from your home and your job and make you work like a slave, maybe breaking rocks with a pick. And all you have to do is say, oh, I'll worship the emperor too. What would you be tempted to do? Some were cowards because they were thirsty for comfort. Some are faithful. They claim a love for Jesus. They love the thing, or excuse me. Some were faithless. They claim a love for Jesus. They're thirsty for the things of this world. Some were detestable murderers. They're thirsty for what? Selfishness, autonomy. I do it my way. No one gets in the way. Some were sexually immoral. What were they thirsty for? Chasing some sort of pleasure, identity, power outside of God's design for sexuality. And those who practice this will go to hell. Sorcerers, partnering with the paganism of the day. Idolaters, worshiping and serving not Jesus. Liars, false teachers, those who influence others away from Jesus and his call. It's a question to check your thirst, isn't it? Isn't there desires behind all of these things? If I just had... You're thirsty for something drinking from the wrong cup. So what do you need then? You know, I'm really happy that this text didn't say to those who have never been cowardly faithless, faithless, sexually immoral, idolaters or liars, to those who have never done those things, they can go to the new earth. Cuz if the text said that, how many of you would go? If this was the law, I just want to make it clear, I would not go. I have had moments of cowardice, moments of brokenness, moments of idolatry. Every sinner has. Who's the only one who never has? Jesus Christ. And so that's why verse six says, who gets the spring of the water of life without payment and for free to the thirsty. Thirsty for what? Look what Jesus said in John 7 37. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him what? Come to me and drink. Are you thirsty for Jesus? That's the question. That's the question. Are you thirsty for the person of Jesus? If you are, you've put your, it's another picture of real faith, isn't it? You've put your trust in him. You can know he lived the perfect life to represent you. And through faith in him, God calls you, righteous, not based on your living, but on his. You can know if you're thirsty for Jesus, he paid for all your sins. Jesus died for my moments of cowardice. Praise his name. And he rose from the dead. And those who trust in him legitimately, genuinely, have a thirst for him. And if you have a thirst for him, guess what you will want to put away? I don't want to be cowardly anymore because I'd rather have Jesus than comfort. I don't want to be faithless because I'd rather have Jesus than be in charge of my own life. I don't want to be detestable or a murderer because I want Jesus and what he loves and what he says. I don't need sexual immorality anymore because I want to follow Jesus according to his word. I don't want to be a sorcerer or an idolater because Jesus is my Lord and God. I don't want to be a liar. I want to cling to Jesus and what he's said. And because you're thirsty for Jesus, you will grow in those things and guess what you will inherit on the last day? The new I'll close with this. Look in 2 Corinthians four seventeen. For this light, momentary affliction. Let's take, that, let's take that a little bit slow. Who's talking? Paul's talking. If you know anything about his life, it was probably harder than yours. <laughs> uh, beaten within death several times. Stoned and left for dead. Uh, large groups of people wanting to murder him. Always dealing with dangers around every corner. Read 2 Corinthians, you'll see it. He, he tells you about it. Read, read Acts, you'll see it. And, and so, so back up again. What did he say for this what? light, momentary, affliction. He could say, Paul, how is this light? Well, he would say, well, in a way, it's not light at all. It crushes me, but it's, it's, light is a, it's, it's a term of comparison. And so what I'm doing right now, Paul would say, is I'm comparing my affliction right now with what? This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal. Remember how the first one was momentary What's the next one? Eternal. Weight of glory. Remember how the first one was light? This one's weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. Do you hear what Paul is saying? The new we will inherit is so wonderful that it will make any of this look like nothing in the end. We have no idea how incredible our inheritance in Christ will be. But we are to ponder that so that in this life, we will be thirsty for Jesus and faithful to him no matter the cost. Amen? Let's be faithful and let's go to the new earth. I'm going to pray. I just want you to know if you have any questions or you want to talk about what it means to know Jesus, be devoted to him. I would love to talk with you. There's even some church members around you. You can talk to them. They would love to talk with you about what it means to know Jesus Christ. If you'd like, if you'd like uh, some prayer, I'd love to pray with you after the service. But let's pray even now. Devote ourselves to the Lord, our Heavenly Father. We thank you for these incredible promises, Lord. The promise of what you want to do to thrill us is just its, it's over the top. A new earth, new people, intimacy with Christ in your face, happy forever. Oh God, give us a thirst for you and your promises and let that show itself in how we live today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflife.com folfcrc.com.